So it's my heart that uh, people of faith, wherever we find ourselves, understand that collectively we have the moral authority to make demands upon systems and say, this is not okay, this is what our kids need, this is what we're coming for. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by... What up, family? It's Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher here in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is all the above. Your place for news and analysis of all matters pertaining to our world of education. We want to send a, a, a warm welcome to anybody who might be watching us for the first time on these YouTube streets or listening to us on the first time, for the first time through your podcast app. We want to say that we hope everybody is having a wonderful start to your 2022 so far. We are in February, Jeff. We already got through January, just went by like that. We're not going to talk about any of the uh, Omicron craziness or the other craziness, Jeff. We're just going to full steam ahead into a positive, happy <laughs> February for everybody. Black History Month, actually, Jeff. It's Black History Month, so we have that. Indeed. Yeah, gotta love that. Uh, although, we probably should say, uh, Manuel, that every month is Black History Month here on All the Above. But, Indeed. Uh, point, point taken, yes. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So, Jeff, man, it's... You know, we, we've had a, a string of super dope episodes and anybody who's joining us for the first time knows that we only bring uh, the really super dope guests onto our show because as, as Jeff said at the start of this, we like to bring an unstandardized take on education and that unstandardized part is where we are reflective of and centering voices that have too far, for far too long been marginalized and left out of conversations around education. And today's guest, wow, Jeff, we got, we got a, a, a guest that I'm very excited about, partly because this guest is a big time fan of the show. I believe this guest has been listening to the show for quite a while, Jeff. So what's on the agenda for today? Well, Manuel, as usual, we got a good one for everybody, and uh, I am particularly both curious and excited about today's guest. Uh, we have a wonderful person coming on uh, by the name of Zakia Jackson, who is the president of a nonprofit called the Expectations Pro. Excuse me, the Expectations Project, uh, based out of Washington D.C. and they are an organization that um, I think is fairly unique on the national landscape. Um, they are a, uh, an organization, a collective of people interested in educational equity, but rooted in a faith-based interest in educational equity and outcomes and serving the needs of marginalized youth. And I think often when we talk about the kind of role of religion in school, we tend to think mostly about you know, what's, what gets covered, I guess, more broadly in the media, which is more the kind of right-wing, evangelical, um, you know, privatized uh, school sort of lens on education. Uh, I think we're going to have a different type of conversation today, which is one that, honestly, I don't know if I've ever really had uh, with someone in this way before. So I'm very excited to, uh, to kind of learn a bit and hear a bit uh, from today's guest, uh, Zakia Jackson from the Expectations Project. It's going to be fascinating. You definitely don't want to miss it. Yeah. Sounds dope. Can't wait. 
But at first, folks, we have our Do Now. That's where we take a look at recent news and headlines in the world of education. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. All right, folks, now it's time for today's Do Now. Let's take a look at some recent news and headlines in the world of education. Jeff, how are we going to do the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, today we got uh, my personal favorite way that we do the do now. Uh, we got some key vocabulary terms to dig into today, Manuel, in our lexicon. All right. All right. Let's get get our learn on. Let's get some new words going. All right. Let's see. Let's see. First word, Jeff. First word is um, proceed. Mm. When I when I hear that word, Manuel, I got to like my my 90s hip hop roots emerge and I could, I could just, uh, I could see the album cover uh, <laughs> with the roots and I, and I just hear the beat in my head and I, and I wanna say I shall proceed and continue to not sing this song on the show. But <laughs> you, uh, you know what man, I mean. Man, you could've kept going, um, man. <laughs> uh, that, that's what I think of when okay. I hear the word proceed, but I'm sure we mean something else in this context. We, yes, we do mean something else in this context. However, um, that that wasn't a bad rendition. I, I believe we've oh, had you now. Thank you. <laughs> we've had you now seeing some Taylor Swift and some some Roots. So very eclectic, eclectic mix That's right. here. That's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So proceed. This lexicon term is um, in reference to the fact that we are we are not going to cancel student loan debt. In fact, we are going to proceed business as usual with um, going into debt and then offering small, small little help here and there to um, help folks, quote unquote, afford college. And this is in reference to a new program that was recently announced in California. And this program is being built as the California College Core program. And according to a recent news release from the governor's office, a new service-based opportunity program is coming to 45 California colleges and universities. And this program will offer $10,000 to students who complete 450 hours of community service during the academic year. According to the news release, this quote, Californians for All College Corps program, that's the name of the program, aims to, according to the release, quote, help create debt-free college pathways for low-income students who commit to serve. Now, the program will offer up to 6,500 college students over two academic years who participate in volunteer service opportunities in critical issue areas such as climate action, K-12 education, and COVID-19 recovery. Those students will be offered up to $10,000 and nearly 4 million Californians owe $147 billion in student debt with Black and Latino Californians facing the highest rates of default and delinquency. So according to this program website, the three goals of the program are to one, engage college, college students in meaningful service opportunities that build leadership skills and civic responsibility. Second, help students from diverse backgrounds graduate college on time and with less debt. And third, support the work of community-based organizations focused on key local priorities. The official press release uh, states that, quote, Governor Newsom has prioritized the hashtag Californians for All College Corps as part of an effort to lead the nation in service-centered paths, relieving the debt burden on our recent graduates while moving the state forward with service-focused careers, end quote. So, Jeff, 
we are going to proceed with a student debt um, accumulation, but here's a program that aims to offer some level of financial support for students who complete volunteer hours during the academic year. So what are your initial thoughts on this upcoming program? Yeah, man. Well, well, I would like to propose a new lexicon term for <laughs> for this story, which captures my response, which is conflicted, highly, highly conflicted. OK, because, you know, I have a general rule of thumb when it comes to public policy, which is uh, given my general lack of faith in our political system to do things that are good for people, when things that are good for people happen, I have to sort of remind myself to be like, look, man, don't be upset about good things happening. Like, even though it's not enough, even though we should be doing it differently or whatever, like, don't spend your energy being upset about something that, that at least is better than the way it was before, right? Um, and so I'm trying to kind of maintain my mental discipline uh, in, this, in this moment. That's admirable, uh, Jeff. That's admirable. Yeah, I thank like you, that. thank you. I, I, I think so myself. So, uh, <laughs> so you know, look, Giving people money, which I think should have an asterisk next to it in this particular story, because we're not actually giving people money, but in the general concept of things, offering financial resources to people who need it to pay for college is what we should be doing and is the right thing both morally and politically and societally to do. So, okay, cool. Now, other side of the coin here, we're not giving this money to folks, as honestly I think we should. We are effectively employing people, even though, you know, of course, they're, you know, legally structuring this as, uh, you know, sort of a stipend that comes in exchange for some volunteer work. But effectively what we're doing is employing people to do, uh, you know, a few hundred hours of community service in exchange for financial resources, right? Now, I actually think this model, if it were to be dramatically expanded, something like a, you know, like National Civil Service Corps that says like, hey, people should all do some civil service in their life in order to, uh, you know, contribute to society, have different, you know, like job experiences, travel some, other kinds of things like that, and for which they would be employed, see, receive, you know, um, tuition money, those sorts of things, I actually think it's a great, like, societal concept. Um, I think the, the tough part for me here, Manuel, is like $10,000 is great, but it's not enough to cover, you know, all the expenses um, for folks, especially when you spread it out over two years. So I sort of look at it and I say, look, why don't we just give everybody free tuition? <laughs> okay. And of course, it's not free tuition. It's expanding the notion of uh, what we call public education. We don't say you get free tuition to your local elementary school, right? Like you have a right to go to school. We should just expand that to higher ed. We should pay for people to go to college and we should offer people a living stipend so that they can afford to go to college. So the fact that this exists means we have a better system than we had yesterday. So, okay. Uh, the fact that the if you add up now, Manuel, I'm forgetting what the the hourly requirement was. So 450 hours uh, into ten thousand dollars. If you broke that down into an hourly wage, it's roughly like twenty two dollars an hour, right? So I'm like, okay, 
cool on that front. Like we're, you know, this, this, this were it to be employment is playing, paying like a dignified wage to folks for, for doing work and it's contributing to a societal good. So, okay, great. And I'm like, why don't we just give everybody <laughs> like fully subsidized tuition and a living stipend and not necessarily have to require all these special, you know, we only have it for this many number of people and you have to be, you have to apply and all this stuff. Yeah. Like everybody should have access to this kind of stuff. So, you know, I'm conflicted, but um, I'm going to focus on trying to be happy. <laughs> what do you think, man? Well, That's a great goal for 2022. Focus on trying to be happy. Emphasis on the trying to. Now, yeah, I... I Similar to you, I am, I guess you could say conflicted. I could only assume there's some really well-meaning folks behind this. You know, I don't know where this idea originated. And I'm, but, uh, you know, I'm sure at least some of the folks, hopefully all of the folks, but um, the people behind this are meaning to do good and and they come in, into it hoping to find some kind of, kind of way to support folks, especially as it says, um, black and brown folks across California to afford college or to not accumulate as much debt. So I don't want to slam it in, in you know, considering that you, they're probably well-intentioned. It does remind me of sort of like a FDR style, New Deal era type of program. Um, you know, the fact that it's called California, what was what was the name of it? California College Corps kind of, you know, reminds me of like Civilian Conservation Corps, uh, New Deal mm -hmm. era and, and, you know, government yep. financial support for folks in exchange for them doing some kind of work that benefits, benefits the whole, in this case, you know, for, for service learning. But yeah, $10,000 over the two years. I really hope, I don't know, but I hope that $10,000 doesn't, that the students don't have to wait until all 450 hours were completed because I could see that as being a uh, disincentive to do this because I mean, I got bills to pay right now. I got books that I have to pay for right now. I have rent due right now and I have to complete 450 hours and then I get my stipend. That sounds not like a great idea. So I hope that's not the way it works, although it might. And to your point of just expanding, expanding access to education. I mean, there are so many articles out there that, you know, we actually considered talking about for the do now articles about like dropping college enrollment and the ongoing impact of the pandemic on folks actually going to college. The the fear is that like folks aren't gonna be pursuing college because of the disruption that this pandemic has caused and, and whatever else. So if that's the case, then we're still under this belief then that college is an investment that people do need to go for the better, for the betterment of our society and our economy and all these other things. So if that's the case, let's do more than just offer 10 grand in stipend in exchange for 450 service hours like this. To your point, let's just make it, let's just extend our notion of public education from K-12 to K-16 or whatever, because it's something that is especially vital for, for those folks who are looking to transform the, the generational impact of systemic racism and marginalization and try to be the first in their families to get a college degree and get a career and, and, and all of that. Like, let's just go ahead and expand. I'm thinking about my own students who are predominantly black and brown. And as they go to college, I'm thinking about how hard it is already. A lot of them already work in the academic year already is very, very tough. So to ask students to find time and space to volunteer, I don't know, that seems like a really big ask because I'm a lot of the students that are being, I guess, targeted by this program are probably folks who already work two or three jobs outside of the classes that they attend. So again, I hope the uh, financial support from this program comes like as they complete hours, not at the end of it, because if it's at the end of it, you're probably going to miss out on a lot of folks that that you might be aiming for. Probably the folks who could 
afford to wait to the end of the academic year to get their stipend are folks who maybe don't have to be working a job right now and maybe have the liberty to volunteer hours and collect a payment later on versus right now. So, so I do question that, but I guess it's a decent idea, but I just hate that we are proceeding with business as usual when it comes to this idea of, oh yeah, college is expensive and folks will be accumulating debt. Let's go ahead and move forward and come up with different programs to help them address that debt in these little small ways. 10,000, that's like pennies these days when it comes to the the total amount of debt that a student collects after four years or, or more of college. So yeah, that's, I don't like that part of it, but yeah. 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 Yeah, it, it you know I all of that I think rings true, Manuel, um, in my head, and it, it reminds me actually a little bit of one of the kind of constructs that um, Dr. Bettina Love uh, has you know certainly helped us think much more clearly about uh, <laughs> nationally um, about issues of educational inequity. I think she's speaking most specifically about the K twelve system, but you know this idea that we set up these kind of um, guardrails or like these these systems within the larger education system that sort of uh, measure how folks cope with structural oppression, right? And then reward people for responding successfully to beat, quote unquote, beat the odds, right? Um, and then pat ourselves on the back uh, for, you know, for those folks existing within this larger oppressive system. And I'm like, this is in its own way, right? <laughs> like a sort of... Uh, inverse version of that yeah. at the higher ed level, right? Which is like, um, we know that college is financially crushing for many people and totally inaccessible to some, financially totally destabilizing to others. We know that, you know, your prospects for many careers of earning a good living after finishing with your bachelor's degree are declining, right? Your wages are stagnant. The cost of living is skyrocketing, especially in places here like Los Angeles, where like it's it's just a largely unaffordable city to live in um, for people, even in many professional uh, jobs, right? Um, without having roommates and, you know, living in a tiny apartment and that kind of thing. So, the, you know, we we in a classically American way set up this system to sort of like, make it seem like we're doing, you know, great stuff and kind of like, yeah, we're going to have these people who got this stipend and they're going to have a little less debt. And isn't that great? And let's pat ourselves on the back. And it's like, why don't we just fix the problem? Why don't we just fix the problem? So, you know, yeah, cool. I'm glad this is happening. It's better we put our money into this than other things. And also like, let's fix problems. Yeah. I can't argue with that. Yes. Um, so there's that, Jeff. And you know, you know me, I don't like to have two downers uh, in the same do now segment. <laughs> although that story wasn't necessarily a downer, although it is, it does remind us of the big downer that is um, debt and all this craziness around college. Um, so let's have a story, this next one, please, that is um, uplifting and uh, leads us forward into a humanizing community of, of folks who look out for each other and, and care for each other. And um, yeah, what we got, what we got? What's the next lexicon term, Jeff? It's interesting that you, you introduced uh, this story this way, Manuel, because I think the authors of this story would say they're doing or they're advocating for what you're talking about. Nice, and I nice. think I would say these people, smart as they are, are completely insane. So, <laughs> so well, that's a good turn. Let's, 
Yeah, let's let's dig. In. That's actually not the lexicon term today, but it could be. <laughs> um, so let's dig into it. Today's uh, second lexicon term, Manuel, is this is actually one of my favorite uh, expressions. It is it's it's, it's bruh. Oh, that that can be used in a lot of different ways, Jeff. It could be used to connote something wild and like yeah. what in the world is happening, or something like wild in a good way, like bruh, like for example. For example, uh, weeks ago when the 49ers were up against the odds in frigid <laughs> Green Bay and nothing uh-huh. was going right and there was a, a block punt return for a touchdown uh, to give the Niners the edge, it was like, bruh, like, really? like, did you see that? It was an amazing play. This is not a sports podcast, so we don't have to go further into uh, the 49ers. But yeah, so yeah, bruh, I like that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, did, did y'all see what he just did there? Weaving his 49ers into our education show. It was a natural, natural space for me to. With his 49ers. You know, <laughs> I believe that's what we call a non sequitur. Um, <laughs> so uh, in this particular context, what the audience maybe can't see at home, Manuel, is on our little you know script here for the show. Uh, it says, bruh, and then it has the emoji with the face palm slapping the yeah. face. Okay, so this is, this is a yeah. bruh in that sense, okay? Um, and I think that captures how I'm feeling <laughs> about this, <laughs> albeit very fascinating uh, op-ed that we're going to talk about. So let's dig into it. Here we go. Um, the story comes to us out of the Washington Post, and there are three doctors uh, f- from collectively Tufts, Harvard, and Boston universities that recently published an opinion piece uh, in the Washington Post advocating for schools to discontinue student mask mandates. Yes, let me just say that again. Three doctors saying discontinue mask mandates. So, doctors Shira Doran. Weston Branch Elliman and Alyssa Perkins, I hope I pronounced everyone correctly, are advocating that the CDC's recent updates on the effectiveness of N95 level masks against Omicron offers a pathway to compromise on masking in the place where masking policies are, frankly, often most hotly debated, America's schools. The doctors strongly supported masking policies in the fall of 2020 as a necessary safety net, but point out that universal masking policies in schools have not come without costs. For example, many students have not seen the faces of their teachers or classmates since early 2020. This affects learning and development, particularly for our youngest learners and those with special needs. Now, the doctors argue that maintaining aggressive mask mandates also sends children and families, as well as staff, the message that schools are not safe, which they say is simply not true. As parents of school-aged children themselves, the doctors argue that they have noticed a disturbing pattern, especially during the Omicron surge, of what they call punitive mask culture, which can take the form of detentions or other disciplinary consequences to students for minor mask infractions. The Omicron wave, they say, will soon be behind us. And barring the imminent arrival of the next variant, we can all hope for quieter times this spring. They urge public health and school officials to educate communities on one-way masking, emphasizing, quote, personal choice regarding self-protection and supporting those who come, uh, who choose to remain masked, end quote. 
now, the doctors say it's time for us to stop worrying about what others are doing and start focusing on protecting ourselves. We have many tools available to, available to us today that we didn't have two years ago at the start of the pandemic, and our policies should shift to reflect those advances. Now, Dr. Rustin, I should probably point out, um, you are Dr. Rustin. That is not uh, Dr. Rustin, MD. That is, is not. Dr. Rustin, EDD. Indeed. And as, as, as I think everyone knows, I am not Dr. Garrett. I'm, I am a uh, master's degree Garrett, whatever, however you say that. <laughs> uh, neither of us are medical doctors. We do not uh, study infectious disease as these three doctors do. Um, we are educators with uh, intelligence and common sense who are going to respond uh, to these three health professionals' take on the issue of masking in schools. And Dr. Rustin, I pass it to you to uh, bestow your wisdom upon us. Sure. Well, first of all, I will say, honestly, I don't have children, young children, in my life. I, I teach high schoolers. I don't have any kids of my own. And I'm not going to begin to pretend to like know what it's like to have, let's say, a four or five-year-old either in your household or a classroom full of them and what masks are or are not doing to their development. So I'll start there. Like, I'm not going to, I can't just completely write off what uh, these folks are saying in this opinion piece because I, I don't know. I don't teach the young ones. I don't have young ones at home. I will point out that their piece does not specify age group at all. They kind of just say children and young people, um, but they don't specify what age they're talking about. They open with saying that the new guidance around N95 masks makes it so such that this, that, whatever. I thought I heard something about like, not in this article, but when that guidance came out, I thought I heard something about like the age range that N95 masks like work at. Like, I think there's something about like, you have to have special ones for like the really young kids because the, the standard N95s that, uh, that we adults wear don't fit right for little ones. But in any case, they didn't specify anything like that in the article. Um, I will say, one thing that really disturbs me about this though, is that this is an opinion piece and I can't emphasize that enough. Yes, these three or four authors, I forget the number. Yes, they are medical experts and they come from really like high regarded uh, universities and places of work, but this is an opinion piece. They are not presenting research around any of this. They simply, they are not like, so I am not a, uh, you know, I don't study, uh, I don't study infectious diseases. I don't research it. I don't do anything like that. I know that these folks know a lot more about it than I do, but they're not presenting any research here. There are a lot of links in this piece and you click on the link and it takes you to isolated, uh, isolated cases, a whole lot of just like anecdotal evidence, especially when they're talking about the impact that masks have on young people being either punished and given detentions and stuff like that for not wearing their mask right. There's a link to like an incident at some school where that happened or students being forced to like um, keep their masks on tightly and try to eat lunch at the same time. Like there's a link to an anecdotal piece on that. The only link that goes to anything that even resembles research is a, a link to a, a, something that an article that came out through Sage and um, it was not a research article. It's just a, in Sage Journal and it just says, we have to think about what the impact might be as this 
pandemic drags on, uh, the impact of young people learning different ways to communicate or the impact that masks and digital spaces have on our communication. It, it simply says, you know, this is something we need to consider. There is no research right away uh, available right now that says young people wearing masks. And again, when I say young people, are we talking middle schoolers? Are we talking like toddlers? Are we talking high schoolers? Um, there's no research right now that these folks are pointing to in this article that say masks are doing that much damage. What they don't talk about is, in addition to that, is the damage that's done when you want your young one to wear a mask because of the uh, the situations in your own household. And those young ones who do show up with masks at places that are mask optional, the amount of bullying that they might receive, the amount of comments that they might get from adults and teachers and classmates about like them wearing a mask. And, you know, my my daddy said that you if you're wearing a mask, that means you're scared, you're scared on huh? this and that, whatever. They don't talk about that impact. They they just leave that out. They do point to a place that piloted a mask optional um, policy in the school system, and they pointed to. 70% of those students and staff saying that they liked the mask optional um, way of going about things. And they cited that this area of Massachusetts had a 98% vaccination rate. I think they're trying to argue that like this place is vaccinated and they're responsible and they're doing totally fine with mask optional. 98% vaccination rate to me means most people in that community are doing the right thing and are being responsible and perhaps feel that it's safe enough and that they could trust their neighbors and classmates enough to go about the mask optional. The places that are screaming against mask mandates, they do not have 98% vaccination rates. We are not talking about the same communities, the same type of population. So I'm really worried about pieces like this because it looks like, you know, follow the science and these scientists say this, but you read their piece, they're not actually pointing to any science. It's clear no, that this is their own all. opinions here <laughs> and they're pointing to anecdotal evidence, which we can't just lump together with so-called science. If there's the science there, present that. Otherwise, I don't really know, man. I, I wish they would at least specify what age range they're talking about because my high school students, they're doing fine with their masks. I don't hear any complaints. We're just rolling and we're good. So I don't know, man. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I, I was, you know, the whole time you were talking, uh, man, well, I'm over here just nodding like, mm hmm. Yep. Amen. I'm <laughs> clapping right along. Uh, this like I find this article, it's interesting, right, because you have these doctors who presumably, you know, are doctors who operate within their practice with a you know high level of care for their patients who went into this profession to make a difference in the world, you know, who try to uphold the Hippocratic Oath and all that good stuff. Right. Um, offering up a policy suggestion and offering up ammunition to folks who are resisting good public health policy around COVID mitigation strategies and vaccination and that sort of thing. They're offering them ammunition to do stuff that we simply know for a fact is reckless, harmless, and getting lots and lots of people sick, not to mention completely overstressing our healthcare systems right now, right? And have for the last two years. So everything you said, 100%, you know, <laughs> correct. They're not citing science. They are, um, you know, they're not specifying age ranges. The most unvaccinated population that we have in our country is children under five, half of whom, right, are in school uh, or, 
you know, more than half of whom are in school if you extend that to daycare setting, uh, you know, centers as well. Um, and we know that our youngest kids already have the toughest time with, you know, with masking, of course, anyways. So it, I find this to be like surprisingly problematic, right? from the standpoint that it is not offering data to say that masks don't work. What they're saying is we see a political solution here that we can use because the CDC has said that N95 masks offer you a high degree of protection against Omicron. I'm like, first of all, that ain't new news. We've known that. I, like N95 masks offer healthcare professionals a high degree of protection against all the strains of, of COVID, right? And have since the beginning, which is why doctors who spend all day around COVID patients aren't all getting COVID, right? Now, what do we also know about N95 masks, Manuel? We know that fit is by far, the, you know, the, a, a huge variable in terms of determining the effectiveness of the mask. What do we also know about N95 masks that people are wearing walking around the street, man? Well, they're made in this one size fits all way. Most of them are not particularly adjustable. People are not trained necessarily in how to wear them effectively. And it's very difficult, particularly when you're in a setting at school where you can't escape being around groups of people and you have to drink and eat throughout the course of the day. You literally can't wear the thing all day long, right? So to put out there this policy suggestion that says, you know what, we're going to take like a sort of Ayn Rand libertarian approach on public health and just say, hey, if you're a person who believes in science and wants to protect yourself and not kill grandma at home, you can wear an N95 mask and that way you're protected, right? While these other people are out here just willy nilly spreading COVID and causing new variants and maybe having to make you get another booster along with your grandma, right? Like, this is crazy talk, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. This is just wildly irresponsible uh, in my perspective coming from healthcare professionals. And I get maybe they're fatigued. Maybe they got some COVID fatigue in, the, in this too and they just want solutions. But this ain't it, man. Like uh, th <laughs> this idea that schools should drop mask mandates, like this, this is true uh, crazy, crazy talk. No one should listen to, to these doctors in this article, at least if you're at the hospital at Tufts, you know, maybe you should listen to these doctors. But uh, certainly not when it comes to school policy. Um, this is this is at best putting a huge gamble on the health and welfare of our young people for no reason. We don't have to do it this way. And mask mandates are not the end of the world and they're largely going OK. Uh, and so why would we do this, man? Well, I don't, I don't get it, man. It's crazy to me. Yeah. And I, I've largely, I guess, tuned out a lot of the debate, recent debates around masks and, you know, quote unquote, open schools or not, whatever, because it's just so, there's just so much. So I didn't come across this until, until you shared it. I, I imagine this is a type of piece that probably did big numbers in the anti-mask, anti-vax, open schools crowd. I imagine this is exactly the type of piece. I think you use the word or the phrase like giving them ammunition. I think this is exactly what that did because here's a piece by doctors and scientists. 
it's an opinion piece and it says exactly what they want, which is like, just don't make us wear masks anymore. And I, I, I just imagine this did big numbers, which I feel is rather dangerous and irresponsible to have an opinion piece presented by doctors or physicians and, and list all their credentials, but then allow this piece to go through without any actual science being cited inside of it. I think that's really problematic. I understand everyone has an opinion on this and I understand folks, some folks at home, they have their own kids and their kids might be having challenges with these masks and others might not be. And and seeing something that's presented by scientists with these degrees that they have, like Harvard and all this stuff, it just, it's, it gives it the feel that this is like really, really superficial. And then you read it and you see links to like these random little articles and stuff and there's nothing there. And it's just, it's, it feels like these folks just wrote it at home while they're dealing with their toddlers bouncing around. And I don't know, man, it's just, it's dangerous. But nowadays everybody has a platform. Everybody has, you know, clicks and engagement rule everything. And I'm sure the Washington Post made, um, good amounts of money off of the clicks that this <laughs> article here generated. So if you yeah. are listening to this or watching this and you do have a young person in your life or you are a teacher of young people, I know it's a struggle. It's got to be a struggle. And just I, all, all I can say is, man, just keep making the decisions that are best for you and your family. Because as these folks point out in this article, like it's time to start stop worrying about others and worry about yourself. Like I guess that's the policy that we're going with. Forget community, forget helping each other out. Just worry about your own and... I, I guess that's the best we could do. So yeah, man, that's um, really unfortunate, I think, for this piece to go yeah. out, but that's my take on it. Indeed, indeed, unfortunate. Good, maybe that could be our lexicon term instead of bruh, <laughs> unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, for sure. All right, folks. That was uh, that was the do now for today. All right, we took a took a look at some stories, some very different stories. Student debt and service learning, and throw some pennies at them and um, masks. Do we still need them? Isn't the pandemic over? Pandemic fatigue, this and that, whatever. Yeah, um, we're gonna get out of that arena and go into uh, what is 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 sure to be a really dope conversation and a really uplifting conversation about um, just organizing and and doing right for for our children, especially our most marginalized children uh, who are out there, and just really thinking about the path forward towards building a, a more humanizing school system for everybody, but especially those students who have yet to experience what humanizing school system could possibly look like. So that's up next in our seminar. Stay tuned. Hey folks, thanks so much for tuning in to All The Above. We really appreciate you. And as you know, All The Above is a small operation. It's just me and just Manuel, that's it. We have no sponsorships, which means we are totally dependent on our amazing audience to help support the show. So here's what you can do. Go to our website, which is aotashow.com support. That's aotashow.com support. There you can find links to everything you can do to support the show. You find all the links to every platform that we're on where you can like, subscribe, follow, make sure you share our show with your whole network. Also, you can donate there. We are on Venmo, we're on Cash App, and most importantly, you can find the link to our Anchor page where you can become a monthly patron. Even a small donation once a month will make a huge difference in helping us continue to produce the show. Lastly, you can find there the link to get your flyest, best, latest, all the above show merch, okay? All you gotta do is go to aotashow.com support. Thanks, enjoy the rest of the show.
All right, folks, now it's time for today's seminar. I am so excited about our guest today. Uh, phenomenal, phenomenal, really super dope uh, individual that I've had the pleasure of coming across, uh, mostly through Twitter and the, the Educolor space, but we have today for everybody, Miss Zakia Jackson. Welcome to All the Above. Yay. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you both so much for inviting me. Uh, my mom is excited too, because she's a fan of y'all's show as well. <laughs> yeah. It's a big deal in my household today. <laughs> yeah, AOTA family. We love that. We love that. Um, folks, for, for those of you who um, aren't familiar with uh, Zakia and her work, let's go ahead and share a little bit about her before we get into uh, today's discussion. So Zakia Jackson serves as president of the Expectations Project, a non-governmental and nonprofit organization that mobilizes people of faith to demand excellent public schools for children who are black, brown, in poverty, and otherwise marginalized. Since joining the Expectations Project in 2015, Zakia has overseen advocacy campaigns, executed learning experiences that emphasize systemic policy changes, and has fostered meaningful and long-term partnerships with clergy, organizers, and activists. Zakia previ previously served as a preschool teacher and a social worker before earning her MBA and becoming the Associate Director of an Enrichment Program in Nashville. In 2020, she ran operations for the Black Church Political Action Committee, which was heavily involved in organizing voters in Georgia. Zakia loves to help people grow, heal, and transform their pursuit of justice and equity. And with that, I'm gonna hand it over to Jeff with our first question. All right, well, uh, Zakia, so wonderful to have you on uh, the show today, and it's been fun to uh, just interact with you a little over over the years on Twitter, and it's always kind of cool to like meet someone in the real world, even though we're meeting through <laughs> through Zoom, I guess, right now. But as real quote, as we unquote, can get in, right now. Yeah, in, yeah. <laughs> in the real world uh, that you, you know, mostly have just seen in Twitter. So po power of social media on display, I guess, here today. But um, our first question for you is you serve as the president of the Expectations Project, which is just a, a great name, by the way. Um, and the Expectation Project describes itself as the country's largest network of faith-motivated public education equity advocates. And we are very interested in learning more about what that means and sort of the intersections of um, this idea of faith, educational equity, and policy advocacy. Uh, what does this sort of advocacy look like for you, for the Expectations Project, um, and how does it fit within sort of the broader national landscape and conversation of working towards educational justice? Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about our work uh, and, and what all of this means. It is not uncommon uh, for my friends to be like, Zakia does great work, but then not necessarily <laughs> be sure how to continue talking about it they can give examples of stuff i've done but this is this is fun for me so at, at tep i'll call us tep we uh strategize systemic change and public education we develop education equity advocates and then we facilitate opportunities for advocacy um, that have far-reaching impact scalable impact uh, and we do this from this drive of our faith and with uh the the knowledge that at times we can leverage our faith in these in this advocacy space right 
So, you know, it's not uncommon. Many of us know that in black and brown communities, uh, faith leaders have a lot of impact. Often uh, houses of worship serve as community centers, families, teachers even, and, and students are interacting uh, often with um, faith leaders. And some faith leaders get that. They are full-fledged activists, <laughs> right? And they are people, I'm thinking of people in California, like uh, uh, Sister Jackie DuPont Walker, who organizes the Social Action Commission for the AME Church. She's in Los Angeles. Uh, Pastor Michael McBride in Oakland, who has done activism all over the world and, and does a lot right there in Oakland. And other faith leaders need a push, right? Or need some help or um inspiration to be able to do it alongside of other things that they're already doing which we would call direct service backpack drives right or food pantries or other things that they're doing because they're sensitive to to the needs of their congregants and and in their neighborhoods and while those things are are great things to do we do not discourage anyone <laughs> from doing those things let me be clear uh, they don't necessarily provide systemic change. They don't disrupt the system. It's kind of like they are uh, a Band-Aid, a much needed Band-Aid. Again, I'm not minimizing the impact of it, but it doesn't transform a community necessarily. And really, we really want um, faith leaders to understand that with their influence and with their platforms, they can be involved in righting the, the wrongs in our systems. But then on another uh, perspective, everyday people of faith who aren't uh, leading congregations necessarily, who uh, maybe go to houses of worship, maybe they don't, but they are oriented by a moral ethic and by a faith ethic in their lives. Those people as well, our voices in that way counts. And, and you can make a sizable difference, especially when we come together and do something in mass that can be disruptive to the system as well. So mentoring, uh, people often think I'm like coming for mentorship programs, right? And trying to say those are effective or those don't matter. I think all kids and all people need mentorship period. So that's not, it's not a, like a competition, right? However, sometimes we're trying to erase oppression at a systemic level with service and we just can't do that it's just not able to contend with the level of oppression that uh, we're experiencing at a systems level so it's my heart that uh, people of faith wherever we find ourselves understand that collectively we have the moral authority to make demands upon systems especially these systems that we pay into <laughs> right, uh, as being citizens uh, and and say, this is not okay. This is what our kids need. This is what we're coming for. All right, I, I love that. I love that. It actually reminds me of some of the work out of um, UCLA, Daniel uh, Solarzano. He's talked about transformational resistance and how not all ways of action against uh, systemic oppression um, lead to that sort of systemic change that we need. So yeah, mentorship. 
definitely want to encourage that and all that. But then there's the systemic uh, change that needs to be had so that we don't have to have to rely necessarily on on service to to survive the system and, and get through. But a lot of times in education circles, when we talk about faith-based organizing or anything related to faith and the education system, a lot of times that immediately leads folks to think about, well, you know, isn't, is that, is that the type of organizing where, where folks are saying that they don't want to be having their kids exposed to evolution in schools and we don't want kids to be taught about sex ed in schools. A lot of a lot of the faith-based organizing around education is around that type of like, uh, you know, we need prayer in schools and uh, we need to have creationism in, in science classes and all that. So we're curious if you could explain a little bit about how um, how your work distinguishes itself from from that type of work and, and any challenges that you might have had with folks trying to like, you know, kind of lump your faith-based organizing with so, sort of that more like right wings, oppressive type of organizing that we have out there. Yeah, that's uh, that's real. Um, I think one of the things we've grown in a lot as an organization since I've been here and that we're clear, very clear on now is that we are explicitly focused on uh, racial equity and those groups are not right. We are explicitly that's not the only type of equity we're talking about, but we make it clear that there's a lot of things that are happening that are rooted in racism. One of the trainings we do talks about the history of public education. And actually where some of that conservatism is rooted in was a cover for a racist desire to separate and not have to be, for, for white children to not have to be schooled with black children and brown children and, and California early on Chinese children, right? Um, and so I think that explicitness is just part of, of what goes hand in hand um, with our work. And I mentioned this, but I'll say it again. Often conservative political movements use controversial topics for political control that aren't actually about the topic itself. So we see that happening with uh, the critical race theory bans presently. That's also where the hysteria over Roe v. Wade back in the 70s uh, was rooted in. It wasn't actually about abortion. It was about controlling a political base of people. Uh, and so I think being honest about that is hard sometimes, but it also is what it is. Uh, and there's a lot of papers, there's a lot of evidence, there's a lot of history to support that. Um, and just naming the the heart and the root of, of so many things that are, are, are going on politically. Uh, a story to that end, one time I spoke at a Christian conference uh, with quite a few religiously conservative attendees. It, it was a spectrum, not everyone was, but quite a few were, were conservative. And in the, this workshop I was doing, I spoke about the importance of advocacy and how even uh, a faith witness, if you will, for Christians to Jesus includes disrupting and changing systems. You can see evidence for that, like textually in the Bible over and over again. So afterwards, one of the attendees came up to me and was kind of like, so uh, I hear what you're saying, but isn't the most important thing that kids in public school know Jesus? And in my mind, I was like, girl, what are you talking about? <laughs> I did not say that to her. Professionally, I responded uh, and said, you know, I used to work every day in public schools. 
And before school started, I would pray for my students. Furthermore, many of the other teachers were people of faith in my school, many Christians, some of other religions. There's still plenty of faith and faithfulness in schools, right? But also students. Students come from a variety of backgrounds. It, it was kind of like uh, I said to her, I hate to break it to you, sis, but Jesus is already there. Like this is not, this is not the, the thing, right? Um, and so I'm I'm not a fan of um this idea that one group holds Jesus, and if everyone else gets their concept of Jesus, everything will be okay. That's you know, not, first of all, it's not fair to people of other religions. We have to honor uh, people who, whose faith is rooted in something other than our own. But if you are a Christian, it's also not consistent with what the Bible says in my uh, experience and opinion. And so when people do that to me, y'all, I just, I just feed it back to them. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not new to this rodeo. This is not <laughs> this is not how we're going to do things today. I won't necessarily get into an argument because sometimes those aren't arguments worth having, but I will respond in the moment um, on, on a lot of levels. I'll check you on what you said or what you're claiming the Bible says. I'll also check you on understanding oppression and systems. You're avoiding it. We're not going to avoid it. It's racist to avoid it. We have to get into this, right? So. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it, it's when we uh, invited you onto the show, Zakia, I was, you know, talking with, um, with Manuel and, and uh, part of what I find really fascinating about uh, what you said here and about the, your work through, uh, the expectations project is, you know, this idea of sort of um, at least like uh, flirting with <laughs> uh, the the sort of traditional debate around like separation of church and state and the the way mm -hmm. that that plays out in um, in school, which is probably one of our largest you know kind of national institutions of the state. Um, and I honestly hadn't been familiar with a group like yours uh, up until recently uh, that is kind of approaching this discussion of, um, you know, bringing a faith-based argument around equity and justice uh, for, uh, for marginalized communities, right? Um, and not one that is saying, oh, you know, going down the road of just like, well, we want to bring the Bible into the curriculum, let's say, or any other type of scripture mm -hmm. into, into the curriculum. Uh, but we're really going to talk about these kind of larger societal equity issues and how they play out in school. Uh, and it was just a sort of fascinating new uh, new angle for me on, you know, the good work that is being done um, in faith communities around the country. So just want to name that and um, and say it's. I, I appreciate the way you've kind of pushed my thinking about what's out there and what's possible. And you know, it's it's maybe not all just the stuff that you see, you know, in the in the kind of shock media environment that we um, that we live in, uh, which is which is really fascinating. And also, yeah. you're a person who uh, you know has has walked a really interesting path around your own experiences with. Uh, inequity and 
those sorts of issues in the school system, you and your family. And you recently mm-hmm. wrote a piece called Let a Child Be a Child, um, where you wrote about some of your own experiences uh, traumatic or problematic experiences for yourself and some of your siblings um, in the school system. Um, and in that piece, you wrote, uh, quote, if we believe safety in schools begins with having people uh, react to violence after it happens, then we are failing our children. Schools failed me and my brothers years ago, and we are indeed failing children today, but we don't have to. We can let our children be children. Um, and I, you know, I love that phrase, and I'm wondering if you can maybe just kind of expound on it here and share with us, what does that mean in your mind to, to let children uh, be children? And what are some of the policy aims of this initiative at the Expectations Project that relate to that idea? Well, thank you so much, uh, both of you, for, for reading my blog. I really appreciate it and, and giving me a chance to talk about this, this new campaign um, that w- that we're doing. And uh, I-, I was a preschool teacher. I was also a social worker. And a lot of my classroom experience was as a full-time social worker in a classroom at an alternative school. So early on, I got to experience um, and be involved in the intersections of mental health in school, right? And and one of the things I took from that, though I didn't have words for it till much later in my career, is I'll be a little colloquial here, but wow, it's really whack. The stuff we're expecting kids to be able to do (laughs) when they're hurting, right? Furthermore, adults don't do very well when we're traumatized, but we're expecting children who have been uh, abused, hurt, or maybe haven't been physically traumatized, but there's all sorts of trauma, right? Maybe even just being in a specific school with a specific teacher, as I uh, referenced in my own experience in that blog, can be traumatizing, right? And instead of responding to children with support, we often respond very punitive, punitively, right? I mean, I want to be clear. I'm not. I don't think you all um, think this, but I want to be clear for those listening. I'm not attacking teachers in this. I actually am pretty irritated with how much burden we put on teachers as the rest of the adults uh, engaged in, in in these systems, right? But but school is often not a place that responds to children uh, gently or uh, um, correctively in a way that helps them heal, which makes sense because our society is not good at healing anyways, right? And we see that uh, with with children. And so to me, letting a child be a child means knowing, oh, that's the age-appropriate response. If I had all of those things going on inside of me, I might yell or cuss somebody out or this, that, and the other, right? So how can I help this child contend with the world around them and resource them in the ways that they need. And I also think sometimes we have kids who are acting out, but we're still doing harm to them when we don't let them see themselves in the, in the uh, curriculum, when we don't let them express themselves, when we don't, I mean, okay, I know I'm getting excited, but like, <laughs> what, what if we really allowed children to love learning their whole way through. 
that school was a place where a child could be excited about going to, not just because they're with their friends, maybe, or because they love a sport, but that learning gets to be fun all the way through high school. We know that is possible because we know that there are teachers who do that, uh, but it's not, it's, not the, it's not the standard. It's not always what happens, right? But it can be. <laughs> we can create environments in which children can be excited about going to school. When they make mistakes, we can respond to them uh, in an affirming way. We can give them consequences because people should have consequences when you do something out of pocket, but it doesn't have to be so punitive and set them on a trajectory of the school to prison pipeline or just set them on a trajectory of thinking they're stupid or you know whatever it is. And so yeah, to me, letting a child be a child means protecting and honoring their mind, body, spirit and allowing them to flourish. Right. I say allowing because we can't make a child do things, as we well know, <laughs> as educators. Right. Facts. But, <laughs> uh... but we can create environments where it's hard not to love it and where it's hard not to. I, I can think of, of adults in my life who were like that. Right. And I think some of the problem with ed reform world <laughs> is that we can get so stuck. And like, I say this as someone who really believes in policy, but we can get so stuck in uh, like rules and regulations and things that we're not centering the thriving and the joy of children. And that sounds like airy and lofty, I think, to a lot of people, but we can actually make policies that center the joy of black and brown children. In fact, that's one of our policy priority area focuses this year. We have all of these things under it describing, well, what would that practically mean to center the joy of black and brown children in education? Um, yeah, I, I think that, that, again, sometimes in ed reform world, we lose our imagination. We get overwhelmed because it is overwhelming, but we lose our imagination and, and, and don't take a step back to remember and to dream with the children, not over them, but like in conjunction with children and with teachers and with parents. What could this be at its best? Let's strive for what it could be at its best uh, and, and not just uh, flounder. <laughs> and, 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 and what's going on. And so just to go back to policy, because you did ask that the specific policy aims of the LCC campaign are to fund safer schools by investing more money in uh, school support staff and even wraparound services uh, and less money into solutions that do not work, like more police, more police, Police aren't supposed to attend to the wounds of children. That's not, <laughs> that's not the purpose, right? So why think that in investing lots of money in police and schools is going to help teachers with chaos? I mean, it, the evidence isn't there. Show me the receipts. I'm a receipts type of girl. I don't see it, you know? <laughs> the study, the data is not supporting this. Uh, if if, I, I will say this, if anything, police should be um, pr 
present to protect children from what's outside of the school and from things that are happening outside of it that are criminal. But but police should not be a, a regulator of what's happening inside schools. Uh, yeah. I hope I didn't get too far away from the heart of your question. I did. <laughs> no, ab- absolutely not. Absolutely not. I, I was over here nodding and, mm-hmm and uh, sna- you know, it's hard to clap and snap with the audio on the show. But uh, inside, that's what I was doing, Zakia. <laughs> yeah, I, I was thinking about multiple stories that we've reported on on this show of like six-year-olds and eight-year-olds being arrested on campus for for tantrums and just all, all those wild headlines out there and just how common that is and how how often that doesn't even make the news and yeah i absolutely um love where this campaign is going and, and under this video and under this uh podcast version for those who are listening on the go we'll put links to uh the Ex- expectations project website but also the campaign because i see uh, you all have put together um uh, from from my vantage point um a lot of great information about practically uh, what these policy aims are asking for and what that would look like, uh, videos and, and all kinds of good stuff. So we'll drop all those links below so folks can Thank you. Um, hopefully advocate in their own in their own circle, in their own community, in their own school district to um, let a child be a child for sure, for sure. And if now, I can just add, oh yeah, in March, we're gonna be doing an advocacy week to help people. We do a lot of national organizing, but we're also, um, especially during the age of COVID, but in March, we're trying to help people localize it more. And so we have resources that we'll be dropping in conjunction with that. Uh, how can you make your voice heard at your school or in your school district? Uh, a lot of that is that like, uh, we, we won't always use these terms, but this is what it is. It's power building, get a friend, get a neighbor, send the letter together, <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, we really uh, wanna help people uh, pursue these, these changes for our systems together. And we think a lot of people wanna do it. We're not targeting the people who don't wanna help. That's not a good use of our time. Somebody else might be, (laughs) and that's fine. (laughs) But we think there are a lot of people of goodwill who care, who want to uh, not seeing things continue to uh, dissolve the way they are, and we're here to help. I love that, I love that. And speaking of school boards and local, organizing. Now you have a a, a fantastic background in organizing and we definitely want to get your thoughts on the real, I guess, pronounced and largely successful organizing that we've seen across the nation um, in local context and uh, state and national context, organizing against talking about race, against diverse curriculum, quote unquote, organizing to ban books, organizing to ban so-called critical race theory and 1619 project. And we've seen efforts across across the nation in, in various states to, to really um, become fascist in the presentation of curriculum to, to young ones and, and to outlaw curriculum and concepts and discussions that might cause quote unquote discomfort for uh, for white students. And we want to get your thoughts on this right wing organizing that we're seeing, because from our vantage point, it, it looks like it's been largely successful and it just continues, continues to steamroll through uh, school boards and through districts and through states. And we want to get your thoughts on that. And, and certainly any um, thoughts that you have about how education leaders and teachers should respond to to these uh, latest attacks from the right? Yeah. Um, 
I'll start by being a little bit repetitive uh, and say that these conservative groups are highly organized and they've been planning for a long time. It didn't actually just pop out out of, out of nowhere. We're, we're made to feel like it did, right? But they have right. been uh, planning for a while. Uh, and uh, let's see, I think maybe summer of 2019, 2020, you know, these things are blurring. It's so much going on. <laughs> but there, I won't name names today. We may get to a place where I will. But today... <laughs> But there was a conservative operative who um, started vocally organizing for what we have experiencing right now. And again, this, this was an opportunity to organize a conservative voting bloc and a conservative base and to maintain political power and control. So it's about the issue, but it's also not about the issue of, can we talk about race in schools at the same time? I think it's important for people to understand that who are trying to resist, because sometimes we can get lost in thinking we need to kumbaya people through something and hold their hands and really see that I'm a really nice black lady and I don't hate white people and, you know, this sort of thing. And I'm not saying there's no place for relationship building across different political spectrums and, and ideologies, but that is, um, I need us to let go of that as our primary political strategy is what I'm trying to say, right? Uh, it's a distraction meant to keep us from targeting the heart of what is happening, right? And getting to the core. The core is what is, uh, what is happening is that lots of people are being politically manipulated. I'm not saying they don't wanna do what they're doing, but, but there's strategy behind it. We also have to be strategic. We don't have to be um, manipulative, but we have to be deeply strategic in how we respond uh, as leaders, if you will, in, in this work. And then we have to provide opportunities that aren't deeply overwhelming for lots of people to get involved, right? So we do a lot of, uh, excuse me, we do a lot of helping people understand, you mentioned this uh, earlier, uh, Jeffrey, the, the separation of church and state. We do a lot of uh, training to help clergy and uh, other folks understand, you absolutely may, as a clergy person, participate in advocacy. You absolutely, as a person of faith, can do this and not jeopardize your 501c3. Now, if you wanna lobby, that's different, and there are some regulations around lobbying, and we, we'll tell you that too, to make it easy for you to know how and when you can engage, right? So a lot of political education for, for people who are leading. And then for people who are not necessarily leading the organizing, we still uh, don't know when leaders will rise up, as our students have taught us because they will say, we're about tired of this and we're gonna do something now, right? We think that's great. But we've gotta give opportunities for people to um, make their voice heard and do it in mass. And, and, and that's what I think nonprofits and community leaders need to do more of, right? I think for, um, I think for people who are in the classroom, in their districts, um, uh, like you all, I, I think, what I hope for you, I say this because I'm 
very sensitive to how swamped you all are and in and, and survival mode in your classrooms right now, right? My hope is that in the midst of trying to just stay in the field, to be frank, and continue to, to do what you feel called to, that you will find ways to creatively keep teaching the truth, right? And if you're not allowed to say this specific phrase, maybe don't say that phrase, but you can still talk about <laughs> you know, the, the, the topic. And you can also see if your local union or your local ACLU and other groups are trying to provide some protection and support for you. I don't think a lot of people, uh, I don't think enough people are protective towards teachers, right? And, and, and that is part of some of the organizing that I hope we help help people do and help people come alongside of those who are actively in the classroom and, and have the threat of losing their job if they continue to do right what they know is right. Um, I know this is a little like different, <laughs> but <laughs> in terms of thinking about district leaders, I think that, that um, district leaders who want to resist this need to consider partnering with groups like Stand for Children, with other organizing based groups like uh, Live Free, that's the organization that Pastor Mike uh, up in Oakland works with, so that you can uh, have help with the political strategy around what's going on. I don't presume, but I don't know, but I, I, pre I presume that a lot of uh, district leaders and teachers don't necessarily have the bandwidth to lead a political revolution, but <laughs> if someone else is, <laughs> If someone else is, could be engaged in that way, right? So I guess I'm trying to describe like we've got to we've got to get our lanes and be in this together, and we can't um, leave it all to districts. Now we do need people in districts who are interested in this, formally or informally, right, to figure out what the best strategy is uh, in their context. To that end. Uh, TEP and EduColor, who you mentioned earlier, Manuel, um, are putting out a simple organizing resource uh, soon for four different uh, subgroups of people on this topic, on the, on the CRT bands. Um, educators, parents, students, and community members. I've seen quite a few uh, like toolkits, uh, and some of them are great, but they're also really long. Ours is short. <laughs> we, <laughs> nice. we, <laughs> nice. yeah, we, we want to give you a, a snapshot of what you can do, and then we'll send you to a website if you if you're the person, the community member, hopefully, who has the time like that to to read everything and and uh, and and uh, pony up, so to speak. Great, but for everyday folks who are living it and working in it, I think creativity and uh, community are the key. How can cre we creatively sustain in the moment? How can I still teach what I know I have to and maybe not use certain words or reorganize my lesson? And then how can I build community with other like-minded educators, other like-minded community members and strategically uh, disrupt our local system? I do think uh, let's see. In 2020 and 2021, we had um, 29,000 faith-motivated people. This is through our organizing at TEP. 29,000 faith-motivated people sent 75,000 letters 
to elected officials during the pandemic. And we saw we saw results. I think a lot of times people think a letter doesn't matter, but when you're talking about letters at that number, that many people um, demanding things specifically and clearly, it does uh, make a difference. And in a local context, in your local school district, you don't need 75,000 letters, probably. LA Unified, maybe. Sorry, guys. <laughs> <laughs> but, but in a local context, you know, 100 people show up. That's a big deal. With a, Especially if you drop your letter off in person, if it's safe. I'm not telling anybody to be unsafe during COVID. But that that's... You don't have to have everyone on our on your side, right? Like there's an activist that I really appreciate uh, named Andre Henry, who's also in LA. And he's, a, he's an artist and an activist. And, and he studies the history of mass movement over the world. And his research has showed that you actually need only 3.5% of the population of a community doing sustained action and efforts. That's what I want people to understand. Let's get a very committed, small but mighty group of people. We can disrupt some things and we can get get, um, what we need for children and students. And then the clergy, because I know getting a policy change doesn't mean everything is better immediately. Clergy and other people of faith can be pushing the cultural shift that has to happen in order for a policy to take place effectively. Hmm. Yeah. So, Kim, um, Manuel is going to send us off here in just a moment, but I, I did want to just um, intrude with one one quick thing, which is I think earlier you mentioned that your mother was going to be very happy that you were on the show today. So <laughs> I wonder if you could uh, introduce us uh, virtually to your mother here so we could say hello to her from, from afar. My mom's not in the room at the moment. I can try to find her. <laughs> no, well, well, what's what's her name? We can, uh, you know, we, you can, we can at least give her out. a shout out. Okay. Her name is Dr. Helen Jackson, and she is a nuclear physicist. And she okay. has a very scientific interest and approach to what's happening with our kids in schools. And that's why she likes listening to you all, because she finds your analysis to be very sophisticated. All right. Well, I love it. Uh, Dr. Helen Jackson, um, shout out to you for giving us Zakia and for supporting the show. And uh, nuclear physicist. Okay. I I wasn't expecting that. I I don't know too many nuclear physicists. So uh, I feel I feel better already. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, earlier in this episode, one of the do now stories was about um, some doctors up in up in the Harvard area, and um, we clarified that. All th- I am Doctor Rustin, but I'm I'm nowhere near that kind of doctor, and certainly <laughs> nuclear physicist. Damn, that's what I'm talking about. Nice. It's pretty dope. It's pretty dope. She stays yeah. on. Zakia, have you done something about this yet? Did you hear what happened in the schools? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying, Mom. I'm trying to keep up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Shout out to the ALTA fam. 
all over the place. I love it. I love it. Um, well, this has been this has been a wonderful conversation, uh, Zakia. Thank you so much for joining us and and sharing your brilliance and your dopeness with us, uh, folks. Check out the links below. Expectations Project and and uh, we'll link Educolor also and a whole bunch of links, man. Just check out all those links down there. Uh, hopefully, uh, we'll guide you to some really dope resources um, that'll help you in your uh, local context for sure. So yeah, that about does it for today's seminar. Up next, we'll have our class dismissed where we like to highlight and shout out folks doing wonderful things in the world of education. Stay tuned. All right, folks, we've come to that time in our episode where we like to pause for a moment and show some love, give some flowers, some recognition to people out there doing good things in the world of education. It is our class dismissed. And uh, today we are going to recognize a very special young person who's doing work that not only has a huge impact here domestically, but literally around the world. Uh, Manuel, who we got today? Yeah, this is dope. This is dope. First of all, I didn't know Time Magazine did like kid of the year. You know, I know they do their person of the year stuff. I didn't know they did it for kids. But anyways, they have uh, a selection of kid of the year finalists. Um, I think like four or five of them. I could be wrong about that. Uh, but we want to give a particular shout out to one kid of the year finalist who came across our news feed. And this is a 13 year old in Maryland, a 13 year old. Her name is Lujane, Lujane Al-Qatawi. And she is of Palestinian heritage. And during the early phases of the lockdown of the you know 2020 pandemic, shutting everything down, a lot of folks took up different hobbies. I saw folks online learning how to bake bread and, and all these other things. And a lot of young folks, you know, they sort of were dealing with the, the sudden shift in their day-to-day, -day, like, you know, seeing their friends and all that. And this young person took the lockdown as an opportunity to create a new nonprofit that would help her to extend help and support to girls like her in other parts of the world um, who have been dealing with um, language barriers and such. So let's get into the, the details here. Now, she is, as I said, a 13-year-old in Maryland. She's an eighth grader, and uh, she's a biling bilingual teenager of Palestinian heritage. And during the lockdown, she decided that she would teach Arabic-speaking refugees English. She was inspired by her mom, who was taught English as a second language for two decades, and by her family history. Her father immigrated to the U.S. from Jordan as a Palestinian refugee. So she aimed to tutor nine and 10-year-old Palestinian girls and created her own lessons and tailored her lessons appropriately uh, to those young girls and incorporated videos and emojis that she said uh, she knew that they'd enjoy. And just like that, her nonprofit, which is called Sparkle, was born. And Sparkle means knowledge, she says. It outshines everything. So every Friday for six months during the pandemic, Lujane would finish her week of remote school and get to work preparing 30-minute beginner's English classes. And every Saturday, she'd spend her mornings on Zoom beaming the lessons and her infectious personality 6,000 miles across the world to groups of school girls in Jordan. Now, Jeff, I just thought that was super dope because I don't know what you were doing in eighth grade, but I certainly <laughs> was not thinking about how I could help out kids on the other side of the globe, particularly kids in refugee camps and dealing with all kinds of all kinds of just disruptions in their own growth and, and development. So, yo, this is dope. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And a special shout out to uh, to Lou Jane Al-Qatawi there doing 
fantastic work uh, to make the world, you know, just a little bit better of a place. And I also want to say, Manuel, uh, I guess shout out to Time Magazine because I suppose she's just a finalist, but like much better work than Elon Musk for <laughs> for person of the year. Okay? Did he get person so of the year? I don't even. He got person of the year. Yeah, yeah. Wow. It's uh, we don't need to rehash it. Let's just say, Man. how about we get more in the Lu Jane Al Katawi uh, mold than in the Elon Musk mold? You know, that's uh, that's all we'll say on that matter. Oh um, yeah. So. Yes. Uh, props to her and to all the wonderful young people uh, across the world uh, over in, in Jordan receiving uh, her, you know, her lessons. That's a beautiful and wonderful thing. So, um, folks, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we always love to have you here on All the Above. Thanks for making it to the end of the episode. And just want to send a big uh, reminder to everybody to please share All the Above with your network. Um, folks can find us on YouTube, find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at AOTA Show. Links to all of our content, of course, is on our website, which is AOTA Show. Dot com and you can also find us on anchor with the links to our audio on every single podcast app basically <laughs> that's out there so uh, please do um, like us subscribe give a, a five-star review all of that helps um, thanks so much for joining us today we'll see you next time yeah <laughs>